Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Jenny Miller. Jenny is the Chief Executive of non-profit organisation PAMIS, which stands for Promoting a More Inclusive Society. That's based up in Dundee in Scotland. Jenny, welcome to the programme, and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you. Hello. Really great to be here. It's an absolute pleasure having you, Jenny. Now, um, first and foremost, um, this podcast is um, about leadership and specifically gathering your take on it. So, firstly, what does that word leader actually mean to you personally? Yeah, I guess um, personally, there's a lot about humility in being a leader. Um, It's really important um, not to let your ego get in the way and to really think, I mean, leadership for me is about compassion and passion um, and being able to really listen to people. Um, As a chief executive of an organization who works for people who often don't have a voice at all, being able to listen in very many different ways is, um, I think, the sign of a a leader that's enabled to take um, an organization in the direction that the people who use it need it to go. So, um, yeah, it's, it's about um, being humble, about listening, and about every day being um, a learning day. And, um, and for me, leadership is about empowering other people. And I often have that imposter syndrome, and who am I? But actually, I think... You know, if you can listen to others and you can empower other people, then you can take your organisation to a different level. I would certainly agree with that, Jenny. And um, you mentioned that word humility there, um, especially in the context of uh, business leadership. Do you think that there is um, enough humility um, amongst leaders from your perspective anyway? I think um, some examples of really, really good um, um, examples of leadership where there is humility and that, that bit about being human as well and actually I feel quite proud to be in Scotland I think Nicola Sturgeon has done an amazing job about being very humble and being very um, keen to be human and um, listening to other people but but I think when it when it doesn't play a role um, you end up in a hierarchical egocentric place where you end up fighting with each other rather than actually working together and, and I think if you're not if you're not willing to listen and and learn and also to admit that you're wrong at times, then I think you end up in a very different place. And would you say that it's actually possible to become a good leader without um, getting things wrong, admitting failings, learning from them, and then using that to develop? No, I, I mean, I think I remember I read a quote actually just the other day was looking about, you know, you always learn more by getting something wrong than you do by getting it right all the time. And I'm an occupational therapist um, by profession, and I always remember working with students and talking to them about sometimes it's better to fail at something and learn how to do it properly than just to scrape through. So, no, I mean, I um, I feel I've been taught by the best educators, people who have a profound learning and complex disabilities in their family carers, and they're so willing you know, to, to make mistakes and have a go and, and to teach you, actually, how to, how to work effectively. Um, I, I think I've learned so much more by sometimes thinking I know the right answer and then realising it wasn't the right one at all. But, but being able to, to say you've got it wrong, but I think it's also then being able to say you've got it wrong and then getting support from people to get it right. Absolutely. Um, being a leader certainly is about surrounding yourself with people who you can essentially nurture the best out of, but also in a way can get the best out of you as well, isn't it? Just as much. Yeah. 
Mm. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I look back on my career and think about the people that really influenced me. And I mean, I was incredibly lucky to have the most amazing manager, a very, or leader, a very early stage in my career who just was very, very human. And I suppose she became an, a sort of an expert role model and later a sort of a mentor. But it was just that humanity um, within her approach and the compassion and the passion. Um, yeah, and, and her commitment to stand by you and, and enable you to make mistakes that then nurture you through them. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I think having people around you that can do that is really important. I think it's also really interesting, Jenny, that you mentioned some of the greatest um, influences um, that you've had in your career there as well as being people who are very much out of the public eye. Of course, we mentioned Nicola Sturgeon, on the other hand, who very much is, um, of course, a politician, very much in the public eye, but also being much more prone to criticism for being in the public eye as well. So um, there's kind of a there's a, there's a fine balance, isn't there, uh, between um, how sort of leaders are perceived. And I think in some ways leadership um out of the public eye isn't necessarily as recognised as much as it should be in the UK. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I, sorry, I'm sounding like the ethics girl in Scotland. In, in Scotland, we're really lucky because we have, um, although we're out of the public eye, we also have a, a, a real connection with um, our politicians of all parties um, and with the civil servants who are working there. Um, and there seems to be a real acknowledgement at the moment about that ability to to really listen to the voice of, of people who are living that experience. So, you know, our family carers that, that we work very closely with, uh, and I mean, I use that word inspiring because they are the people that make you get up and really want to go to work. But they have such great ideas and really, really good solutions if we only, you know, listen properly to them. And I think when you're out of the public eye, it probably gives you more opportunity to spend that time to roll your sleeves up, to go out, listen to them, work with them. And we have a mobile changing place toilet and I volunteer at that at the weekend. And that's a bit that really makes me touch home with reality because you're out there with people who need that larger changing place toilet um, because they can't access a normal toilet and and every day you see the difference that something as simple as that can make and it really makes you put your feet on the ground and I think you know being able to get out and reach into the people that you're working with is, is really important so I mean I guess being out of the public eye it's really easy to do that it's not so easy if you're a politician um, because people are very quick aren't they to jump on anything that you might say or do that people don't agree with so yeah but I, I I agree with you also that it isn't always recognized that that leadership role and and, and maybe that's partly our fault because we don't shout about it Absolutely. And so that maybe that's something culturally that as um, a nation, we can certainly look at um, in future. But I did like um, the example that you gave there, um, of course, um, about um, really sort of, I suppose we should face it as getting your hands dirty as a leader, because I think it's it's important, isn't it? It's important that leaders do show that humility and are able to essentially get onto the same level as those around them, because it helps you be a better leader, doesn't it? When you can understand their mentality as well. Yeah. And, and last year, um, we had a very difficult time financially. And, um, and actually, I felt it was really important to lead by example. I mean, how can you possibly ask staff to think about reducing their hours if you won't do that yourself? And I think, you know, I had really good feedback from, from the National Lottery when we, we suggested that that's what I was doing, was that I would work full time, that I would take a pay cut. Because it's really important not to expect people to do things that you won't do. Um, and I think, I mean, I guess that's a bit about humility as well. And 
in actual fact, the team that we have was quite lean anyway. You know, every one of them is just as important as I am. So how, how do you make that decision about whose role is less important? So for me, that was, I mean, it was a really steep learning curve and having to make some very difficult decisions. But at least I felt, um, I felt genuine, I suppose, because, because I was willing to make those sacrifices too. And if you could actually speak to yourself maybe 10, 15 years ago, Jenny, is there anything that you would tell the younger you to maybe do differently or any different leadership qualities that you would tell them to embrace going forward? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, as I say, I was very lucky with my um, boss, Patsy, who who gave us the freedom to try things and to, to stretch ourselves and to have a go at something that you might think was slightly ambitious, but to make sure you've got the support around you. But I think it is really important not to grow up with an ego but to grow up listening to the things that you're passionate about and the people that you care about um so so do something because you really believe in it will really help you get somewhere um and actually Pamis is an organization i've been involved with since it started and, and what they taught me was staying power you know if you really believe passionately that something should happen for example changing place toilets you know if you stick at it for long enough and you don't let go and you persevere, you know, one day great things will happen. So, yeah, perseverance and passion, I think, two really important um, pieces. And being true to yourself, um, not not being pulled off a course just because everybody tells you that it's the wrong course. Um, listen to the people who need it um, and, and go with them. I think it's a sound advice for anybody who is about to embark on their first day in a leadership role, certainly, Jenny. Um, Of course, you mentioned already that you've had the fortune of having some really inspirational figures involved in uh, your career early on who have inspired you. Um, Did you know, therefore, sort of quite early on that you would eventually end up taking the plunge of going into a leadership position yourself and leading an organisation? No, not at all. I remember when I qualified as an occupational therapist, I thought I'd just quite like to stay as a, and you know, a, a, we'd call them basic grade OT and work with older people. I mean, I knew I always wanted to work with people, but um, but I suppose I was nurtured at a very early age um, into sort of various leadership roles um, and, and did quite a bit of work um, at a national level as well. It, just the opportunities came up um but but i mean i have to say i've always been very fortunate i've had every job i've nearly every job i've had i've really loved but this this is the end of my career in in um, this role and and it couldn't have been in a better place and i suppose i feel i'm ending up where i started off working with this group of people who really make me want to get up and work um but no it wasn't something that i thought would happen but as you say i had some really influential and fabulous people about me actually I feel really awful that they were all women that really sort of persuaded me and supported me into um, into these roles so um, but yeah no no it was quite a surprise and and now I feel I've, I've got one of the best jobs ever um, which is, is great because it's great when you want to get up and work every day. It certainly seems it, and um, it's a really interesting um, story as to how you um, became a leader in um, your own right, Jenny, because um, there are some people out there who may believe that leaders are essentially born with certain innate qualities that just make them good leaders right from the off. But you can become a good leader, can't you? You can learn and develop and um, really grow into that role rather than just being really born with the qualities that make you a leader. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I mean, I was thinking, you know, when, when you'd asked me to do this podcast, I was thinking about who Edin was. And, you know, I had a, a mum who never went into, um, never went into a, a management role, but was always a clinical leader. She was a district nursing sister. And I suppose we grew up from a very early age, you know, seeing somebody who was, who was very powerful, but in, in a very human and, and, and practiced way. So, um, yeah, I suppose it just, it, I think it instills those sort of that core values um, in you. And then, you know, that passion develops when you really want to make a difference and you want to do something. Um, and, and it's quite funny because actually occupational therapists often, I think, um, see themselves as partners with the people that they work with. Um, and so, again, it, it's that, that, that different form of leadership where you, you support and enable others to take the lead. Um, so I suppose in, in a way it came sort of quite naturally out of, of that professional background. But, um, but yeah, no, I think you, you can grow into into a, a leader and, um, and as long as you have the right mentors and supporters around you. Um, yeah, and, and if you're willing to learn as well. So, But I like that idea of leadership being not necessarily the person at the, you know, the top. I never think of myself as the top of the organisation. I'm just part of a team. But I think, you know, recognising early leadership and giving people an opportunity at an early stage in their career is really important. I would certainly agree with that. And um, we've talked a lot um, already about, of course, um, your take on leadership and your perspective as to uh, the ideal form of leadership. But if you had to choose, Jenny, um, objectively, the greatest leader, living or dead, do you have any idea who you might pick? If I had to, sorry, can you just repeat that again? So if you had to choose objectively the greatest leader, be it living or dead, who would that be? Mm. Do you know, I think sort of the person that I um, admire, well, there are two people. So there's somebody that I really admire who who probably doesn't consider herself a leader, but she's our, the chairman of our board, actually. Mm. She's a, a family carer, and so she's, she's really the lead of the organisation. So Pat Graham is... Um, the most yeah inspirational woman actually who is a family carer but but also has so much time to give to other people and is really in her way that she nurtures and enables and supports and influences and um, she got the Edinburgh Book Festival to think about having a part of the festival that was was open for people with a profound learning and multiple disabilities and um, and just did it through perseverance and and the most amazing um She's just got the most amazing way of articulating and expressing herself. So, but but I suppose at the moment, because of COVID, I mean, I have to say, and I'm I'm not a political person, but I really admire Nicola Sturgeon at the moment. I just think she she you know she's there every day with really consistent messages and and taking advice and being very honest and very frank. Um, and yeah, and I'm I'm not political at all, but I just think that she is. is quite an amazing woman at the moment in in a very difficult sort of position. I think they are two very interesting and very different examples and especially with the latter case Nicola Sturgeon it does highlight um, those qualities of honesty and transparency being incredibly important in any capacity of leadership. Um, if we do look to uh, the future now uh, Jenny before we do go about wrapping things up on today's programme um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for PAMIS particularly with everything going on at the moment with the COVID-19 outbreak and also what you hope to achieve in that time coming out of the other side of the pandemic pandemic as well. Yeah, I mean I think it's it's a really interesting time. I mean we've had quite an emotional roller coaster because for the people that we care for um, and we support, you know, this has been one of the most difficult and stressful times. I mean quite a lot of the families are used to being I like the 
the Irish were cocooned. They're used to not being out um, in, in the communities, but it is incredibly difficult when a lot of them are now caring, really caring 24-7. I mean, a lot of them have a 24-7 caring role, but this seems to be even more alone and independent. So it has been really, really difficult. And the really positive thing that has happened is that the, the government has, has, and the civil servants have really listened every time we come up with ideas about how we might need to change guidance that make sure it hears the voice. They have listened. But on a positive, and I tend to be a yellow hat person that can see the positive in most things and a positive, I think we're learning to work in a very different way. And I mean, we've developed a lot of online support. We've developed online resources. Our staff team, we used to try and have these together Tuesdays. They're across Scotland. And it was quite difficult to get people to engage with the, you know, the digital way of working. But, but we meet every day um, for half an hour and um, digitally, the whole team. And, and I, I think people are going to learn how to do things very differently and, and in a way sometimes more cost-effectively. I mean, our, our big worry is that we don't forget that actually face-to-face and that human touch and holding people is really, really important. But but I think there are some positives that will come out. And I really hope it's also teaching us how to work together collectively because nobody's got the answer to this. Um, it's really interesting. We often say that about profound, meaning deep, wise and expert. And people with profound learning disabilities don't really care who does what. They just want you all to do it together because nobody has the answer. And I feel this this pandemic has really highlighted that none of us have got the answer and it's only when we work collectively that we really learn how to move forward. So I hope that it, it pushes the collective leadership. I hope that it pushes us to take and remember, you know, where we were at and what it's like not to be able to get out into the community. I have heard families saying, I hope people remember how they felt because this is often how we feel. So so as we go forward, I mean, we're building on, we've had families who absolutely love some of our online resources, which are for art, for well-being and music and some lovely OT students just made a whole load of online activities that you can make at home. And families have said, you know, this would be fantastic to be able to access all the time. So as we go forward, we're going to think far more about how we reach out in, in a different way and, and provide support in a different way. But um, but equally, you know, the next 12 months is going to be quite crucial for a lot of, of charities and thinking how they're going to manage financially, because obviously, you know, we had just tried to become slightly more self-sufficient. And last year, we were quite successful at selling training courses and having the Pamilu on hire. And we have a caravan and a house. And, and this year, we'll lose all of that. So I think, you know, it's going to be a time when we're all going to have to be particularly creative about how we cope financially. Absolutely. And what I think would actually be fantastic for the listeners, uh, Jenny, um, going forward into the next few months, if we maybe have you back on the programme in a few months time, just to look at what we've said retrospectively today and just see how some of those hopes are being borne out and how the whole charitable sector as a collective is doing. Um, But for now, I've got to say it's been an absolute pleasure and really insightful having you on today's programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. No, thank you very much for asking me and, and giving me the opportunity to talk. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure having you, Jenny. Thank you so much. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field. Liz is the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, the trade body for firms who provide investment management and financial advice services to individuals and families. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Liz. And that's coming up next. 
I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course, it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago, and of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the, uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the, the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is, are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they, they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face-to-face or whether that is um, online, uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's it's very challenging um, to... Um, Kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you, um, because it is quite a complex arena, and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop, uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it, maybe, Liz, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort 
that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go- it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or, you know, that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because that then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in in in, in our um, in our country. Without a doubt, Liz, because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah, uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as, um, uh, for example, uh, with with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system. But ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz. Yes, but I think you're right. We, we probably <laughs> shouldn't. Um now, looking at a couple of other points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seems as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole <laughs> here, at least. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think. I think that's, that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst, you know, 31st of January came and went, um, you know, we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period. Um, and for for UK 
um, savers and uh, and investors. Uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know. The, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Europe, in Europe, England, or U- the UK rather, and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posi- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation. And uh, until we see where we go to with that, uh, and of course you've got financial services and fisheries amongst these, the these same two, piece, you know. <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed, um, absolutely, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see. I think. Absolutely, um, and it will be a, a interesting year, if nothing else. Um, yes. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, uh, PIMFA has uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the SEA. Um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting. Um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up 
exponentially. Our criticism is that you know we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or you know the lifeboat yes. funds to pay you know recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is has always been that the polluter pays, but. The polluters have have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken, um, and and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big, so that you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be. Um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine, well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, And that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, We're in the process of finalizing a paper, uh, which we... um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe, FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process. And we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. (laughs) But if, let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one, just just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system, and perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might not want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I were, my number one priority to, to solve the system. In terms of reform. In terms of reform, mm. what regulatory yeah, reform, yes. you mean? Um, I think, oh, goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is, gosh, yes, wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them and what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that then everybody will be will be better off great now I'm conscious of the time here this is already catching up with us so perhaps if we can take a, a little step back and uh, and look at um at the operations of Pimfer again it's what Pimfer do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organizations can that really is be underestimated the importance of having those working relationships with with the departments and the organizations that you do have no i don't i, I think it's absolutely fundamental um to any business actually mm. but it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know, the values that we have as an organization. We, we are a small organization uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt, and I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it? That that's so applicable to any realm, 
whether it's business or, or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think, and because of the time here, we, we, I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask, is looking forward, and I know the next 12 months is full of uncertainty, what are uh, the plans PIMFA has for it nonetheless? Um, so I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we we have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this. But because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does what does regulation look like for, uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it, um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is is just. Um, Kind of is just one of those things. There are a whole host of other of other things promoting the sector as a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be uh, a more important year uh, or that has not been in a while that will determine the future of all of those things and perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been <laughs> Liz, an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.